Welcome to the Startup Microdose podcast with me, Oliver Jones, and my peckish co-host, Ed Stevens. This conversation is with Julian Hearn. Julian is the founder of Huel. Huel is a nutritionally complete food product which aims to change how we produce and consume food. The hockey stick growth of the business since launch in 2015 attests to its wild popularity with 20 million plus meals sold already. The company is on course for revenues of 14.5 million pounds this year and anticipate a billion plus dollar valuation in the next few years. We learn how we used SEO smarts to build an exit of voucher codes business in just three years. And we then dig into the hows and whys of the Huel mission and discuss the landscape of the future of food. Julian's meticulous eye for detail approach really comes out in the conversation and it was an education for us. So without further ado, we bring you Julian Hearn. Hello, everybody, and we are live with Julian Hearn, uh, founder of Huel, which no doubt everybody has seen the t-shirts carting around, which you're wearing today. Thank you very much for joining us. We're excited to have you on board. Very welcome to be here. Thank you. Um, so we know that your your journey didn't just start with founding Huel. Um, you've been an entrepreneur before. So I think to kind of give everything some context, we're quite interested to find out um, about your company before, um, how that came to be, how you came to exit it, and anything you sort of learned subsequently along the way. Um, but what, because you, you started that quite late, relative to sort of some entrepreneurs. 30, 35, 36 when I started my first company. Um, and, and how did you see the opportunity? Because it was in the sort of voucher code space, which Correct. Uh, we know Mark Pearson, who yep. also did very well in that arena. Um, so what got you to sort of take a dive into that? Okay, there's two, two main reasons, really. I was working full time as a marketing, head of marketing, or head of online marketing for Dynaphone at the time. <clears throat> and... Me and my wife were trying to uh, have a baby and we had a few problems and so I wanted to work uh, less in London because I was commuting into London each day so it's about an hour and a half each way, it's three hours a day and I wanted to be at home more so I was just thinking I've, I've been doing this for like 10, 15 years commuting in and out of London and it just gets on your nerves after a while and you think well there must be a better way to do this and then I went to one affiliate event up in uh, Norwich and I met some guys there and I knew some of them through the business and I knew that the sort of monies they were earning and I was thinking this is, they've got to be, you know, really slick, really big businesses, but they weren't. They were like one man bands working at home in their pajamas. And I was just thinking, right, these guys, I don't think they're smarter than what I am. And they're earning a lot of money and they're working from home, which ticks a lot of boxes for me. So I was thinking, right, there must be a way to do this. So I probably spent about a year, uh, evenings, weekends, trying to sort of look for opportunities, look for how to do stuff, learning some tricks of the trade experimenting before I jacked my job in and then I got to a point where I was pretty confident in what I was doing and made a little bit of money and then just said to my wife said look if I put you know full effort into this I think I can make something out of this and so we put enough money to one side and uh, so if you know we could pay the bills for six months and I said look at the end of the six months if I can't make my salary I'll go back and get a real full-time job and uh, and because I'd been working even as weekends, I had a little bit of a head start, so I wasn't starting cold. And so when I started, within three months, I was making more than my salary. So then it was just, from there onwards, it just skyrocketed up. And uh, because it was in the affiliate space, because it was very reliant on SEO, I knew that it was gonna be 
uh, very difficult to maintain that for a very long period of time, but it just kept on going. And uh, within, I think in the third year, I was doing 2.5 million pound profit. Wow. And and uh, it was it's a very a, small business. It was pretty much One still, man band. Well, no, the first couple of years was one man band. And then I did take a few assistants on. I think at the end there was four of us. Wow. Um, and so it's very profitable, you know, very, very high margin. Nearly all of that was natural search traffic and uh, you know, no products, no customer service, yeah. you know, very, very minimal costs, and, but highly competitive space. And so I just thought, right, well, you know, th this is a, an opportunity. So I found uh, a, a guy to help me sell the business and we packaged it up and we sold it to an American business for a multiple of that, that profit. So did very well, so exited. So at that time I was um, 40. 40 years old and I just thought right I'll take a bit of time out probably took about yeah what, what did that look like I mean because obviously a job well done your wife must have been elated that you sort of had this idea that went it's it's a very strange feeling because it was sort of you know even though it was fast it was felt sort of gradual you know you get used to the money as you go so when we actually sold both of us are quite um you know we're not like massive spenders we did splash out on a few things but nothing ridiculous really so it never really I'm saying it didn't change our lives, it did, but it, mm. it wasn't as dramatic as what it could be for some people. Mm. So we were pretty sensible with it. And um, yeah, we had a, a young son, so I took some time out and uh, 12 months, 18 months in, into the sort of time out, started thinking, well, I'm 41 now, I can't retire. Mm. And um, what am I going to do? So I needed something else to do. And uh, that's when I started looking at other opportunities of what I could do instead. And that was the, the, the start of the next company, which was Body Hack, which is what Huel spun out of. Just to jump back for a moment. Sure. I'm interested in that you said that you 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 packaged it up to, for the exit. Yes. Rather, you weren't approached by anyone. You no. actually thought, we need to exit this because it's the opportunity is only there for a certain period of time because it's competitive. Yep. So we're going to dress it up yep. and target that. Yep. How did you actually do that? Stage one was to literally get on Google, do a typical search, yeah. what do you need to do to sell a company? And um, and then when I met a few people, got introduced to a guy who's actually one of our non-execs today, uh, who's uh, had a history of selling companies. And so he, he helped me package it up, which means one was getting the account sorted. I wasn't really <laughs> good at that sort of stuff. Yeah. So getting the legal side and the accounts, yeah. the basic business side of stuff. I was very good at generating traffic and generating revenue, but wasn't so good at the business side. And that's where he's particularly strong. So we were, we. were that's why when I started Huel, I went straight back to him because I thought I want to do this properly this time and start on right foot. And he's very good at that side of the fence and I'm, I'm better at the other side of the fence. So packaging up meant, yeah, getting all those sorts of things in place. And then he actually ran the sales process for me as well. And he got a very good deal and he got something that I probably wouldn't have been able to get myself. Yeah. So he created a marketplace for potential buyers. Correct. Because I think that's it. There's a there's an untold art of fundraising. There's also an untold art of, of exiting. Yeah. Um, so you firmly believe that his influence increased the, the sale drastically? Definitely. Yeah, definitely. There's no way I could have done it myself. I just didn't have any experience of it. I've got experience of it now. So uh, yeah, I could have a stab at it now but I still think he's better at doing that sort of thing he's a very good negotiator um, and just been through that process before so he understood what needed to be done who to speak to how to package it up how to present it in a way that would be um, attractive to investors um, and yeah he just did a great job and dare I say um, just to, to sort of box 
at that topic and um, what made you stand out from the competi- competitors because it obviously is the, the deal voucher codes were really competitive sure so what what do you think your skill art form was there that really helped um there was i i suppose i i spotted an opportunity that others had missed so one of them is is how you uh, attack a market i suppose and the other one was just simply just good seo practices that they had missed um too many of them had focused too heavily on sending links and um building their home page up mm. and rec- and i was much more focused on on specific pages so without going too detailed i'm not sure how your audience would understand this but if you if you send links and uh, traffic to a deep page you can attack a much bigger site with much less link juice i don't know what you guys know about seo learning probably learning, not right. <laughs> learning quickly yeah, exactly. okay, so uh, fundamentally uh, google ranks a site or pages it doesn't rank sites it ranks pages and if you have you know if you take a, a massive site like uh, I know the daily mail it's probably got 10,000 links to its homepage but every day it's creating lots and lots of pages and of course that link juice will flow through from that homepage those 10,000 but it gets divided up by all the pages on the site so each mm. page only gets a limited amount of link juice which means that each individual page if it's going head to head with another page from another site right. it may beat it but it may not but if you just send one or two links to that specific deep page it's got a much better chance against a very big site so if I wanted to create a page and wanted to be a current page on, say, the Daily Mail, I would send some links to that s- specific page and you might be able to beat a massive site like the Daily Mail and rank higher than it. So it's that sort of tactics. And does that, is, does that still work? Because obviously yeah, they're course. always updating their, their practices. Google is very difficult to understand now and that's why I got out at the right time. Yeah. They, they brought some algorithms in where uh, it's debatable whether it's even accurate what they used to do you should be able to reverse engineer google extremely easily you could look at a page and you can understand right that's top that's beating second place because of these reasons that's mm. that second place is beating third place because of these reasons you can look at it you can look at certain factors you could see it now i look at sometimes if you take a section of say 10 keywords from a specific industry you look at them it feels randomized to me it feels like what they've done is they just randomized it a certain amount so nobody appears top for the terms so you never get anybody super dominant anymore and what's happening is they, they there's some must be some randomization in there mm. so you can't reverse engineer it because if you look at the guy who's top at the moment and they might be top artificially and if you look at why they're top you can't work it out because you think well the one in third should be beating it so it can't be that factor so then you're you then double guess yourself and you can't understand what's going on mm. so why well, they also lean on new products so i get the feeling that youtube's quite important to them as well now and the links between google and youtube i find sure but that's always gone on they've always ranked their own sort of properties or they're not supposed to but they always have sort of ranked their properties with a certain different um Wednesday method on, yeah. yeah but these this this method this what i'm talking about is that they are actually trying to cover their tracks so you can't work it out right. basically Right, interesting. Which makes it extremely frustrating. So when I launched Jewel, didn't do any SEO at all, just did the absolute bare minimum, but I didn't do any proactive, didn't do any link building, didn't do anything, just thought, right, the basic guidelines of Google are build a site for humans, don't worry about search engines, make it good, make customers like your brand, and the Mm. rest will follow. So that's basically what I did. I just thought I'm not going to work because what happens when when you're chasing SEO traffic, each morning you wake up, you go downstairs, look at rankings, and you might have been penalised, and then you feel physically sick because all of your business is gone. At the, at the time when I was running that particular site, 
99, 98% of the traffic was coming through natural search. So if you got penalized, that's your business gone. Wow. So yeah, it wow. was, um, and it did happen a couple of times. I got penalized a couple of times, came back, but at the time you just, yeah, you, you just like your money's just gone. You just think it's well, never going to come back. Maybe that's why you didn't rest on your laurels in terms of the success because you felt that it was so, so up and down that all you had to kind of constantly be on a, a certain you know, threshold of, of attentiveness. Yeah, you have to be obsessed when you're doing these sorts of things. You have to get so deep into it that you are, because you're competitive with somebody else no matter which business you're in. And so you just have to, yeah, become obsessed. Is sounds a bad thing to do, but you sort of have to. And <clears throat> that's what makes the difference, I think, between people who are semi-successful and more successful is they just become a bit more obsessed. Well, so then it was interesting that you case to, to take a next step on um, body hack. I mean, is health and fitness something that was important to you? Um, it yeah. seems like you're quite methodical in the way that you looked at your SEO, and maybe that sort of explains the jump into Huel. But what was body hack's basic uh, leading or principle? Yeah, the, the difference. <clears throat> the, the first business that I had that I made the money from was a, a, a cash generator. It made money for me, but it wasn't something I was proud of. So it just it was it was successful, but it wasn't something you would like you know, brag about to your friends or be you feel proud about. So I just felt that I'd got my money now, I'd, uh, <clears throat> I could choose what I wanted to do. So I just thought about different things. I just thought I've always been interested in sort of health and fitness and I was frustrated by um, the way that it, it's communicated on the internet is a lot of bullshit mm. and you don't know who to believe and who not to believe. And each article can contradict each other. You just think there's just so much um, misunderstanding by people out there and some people are very persuasive of what how they um, sell a particular service or a particular diet or something like that it might be how good they are at selling rather than actually what the evidence is so I thought bright idea right what I'll do is I'll create an evidence-based website you'd put people through different fitness programs different diet programs and you would record the um, the results so each week you take photographs and you re record all the measurements and so there'll be no if buts or maybes you can see if you followed that diet specifically exactly like that this is the result that you would get and then the best ones would float to the top you would see that that's the best one this one doesn't work this one does and you can buy that specific program that was going to be the idea of body hack um I, when, when are we talking here this was probably I must have got my dates wrong here somewhere, but I, I felt like I did this when I was 40, but maybe I didn't. Um, yeah. A longer, sure. a longer bender after the sale than you thought. <laughs> <laughs> Most of it's forgotten. Yeah. So I must have been, say, 40, 41, something like that. So this would have been 2011. Right. I think we So kind of before the lot of this like quantified self movement has come in. Uh, no, there was definitely some some about at the time, um, but yeah, it's probably a little bit more niche at the time. Yeah. There was definitely some, but it was just, I suppose, in, in the affiliate industry, some of the biggest sites were the sort of price comparison sites. This was equivalent to a sort of price comparison site. Rather than comparing prices, it was comparing fitness programs and diets, but with real evidence. That was the idea behind <laughs> it, which I thought was a good idea, yeah. but it's just so difficult to execute because each one takes three months an incredible amount of work to get one person through so you can get all the evidence and they have to be super strict because if they don't right and you can't control that and the worst thing is is then there's people gaming it with those stupid before and after photos where <coughs> yep. you see a studio <coughs> two weeks later and they put his stuff well we out. did it ourselves rather than using other people we were going to run it ourselves so right. I, I i knew a personal trainer so he then knew a nutritionist so we got we we got five people to do it first time so there was me and four other people to do it it's just really hard work to do everything and arrange everything so it took a lot of time it was 
so I, I did it for three months. So I followed a very strict meal plan. So the guy worked out for me, gave a seven-day rotation on the meal plan, six meals a day. And I followed that. Six meals a day. Yeah, I was about to say, wow. Just... <laughs> well, you got three meals a day and you got sort of three smaller snacks. Right. And I followed that religiously. And my wife didn't want to make free meals. So I simplified it down. So you can see where this is sort of mm. going. So I simplified it down. So I didn't follow a seven-day plan. I ended up eating the same thing every single day. Yeah. It just made my life easy. And uh, it was very successful. So in three months, I went down from 21% body fat down to 11% body fat. So I was the age of 40, 41 years old. Yeah. And I was the leanest I'd ever been. I've got some photos there, and they 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 are good photos, as in they've been. You should be careful because we can attach photos <laughs> to the chapters of our podcast. Yeah. So we well, <laughs> we could probably find them somewhere. But I mean, they they were you know they were good lighting. I'm not I'm not, I'm not disagreeing. They weren't good lighting. There is there is some of the sort of uh, unlit ones, but there was no Photoshop going on. In yeah. in fact, some people going this is Photoshop bullshit. And so I had to go back two weeks later and do a video because they thought that the, the, the pictures of me photoshopped, so I had to do a video to sort of showing. I mean, at the time, I'm not joking, I was pinching fat on the stomach and it was like that. There was literally nothing there out there at all. And um, so it was clear that I... What were you eating then? Well, I can probably tell you almost exactly what I was eating. So breakfast was five egg whites, uh, 30 grams of porridge oats, uh, 20 grams of coconut oil, 30 grams of um, blueberries. Then at 11 o'clock, it was supposed to be, I think it was 100 grams of broccoli and an egg. At one o'clock, it was uh, 200 grams of turkey, 200 grams of baby spinach, some olive oil, uh, 50 grams of quinoa, something like that. Then afternoon was a protein shake and um, some almonds or something, and then evening meal was similar to the lunchtime, and then in the uh, evening snack was two rice cakes and Peanut some- Peanut butter or something. No, like that. Uh, almond butter. Right, right. <laughs> and the idea being that this was nutritionally complete for the, the, the exercise regimen that you were on. Well, no, I think, I think it, it wasn't necessarily nutritionally complete, so we didn't take into account mi- micronutrients at all. Um, I may have been asked to take a vitamin tablet, I can't remember, but the idea, I think the guy put it together, I just knew from, he'd been a bodybuilder or something before, he just knew this this sort of, it probably was fairly low carb, yeah. and he just sort of knew that it sort of stripped body fat, that's the way that worked, and we worked it back to my actual weight, so if you use a calculator, you can work out how many calories you're supposed to have, and it was just bang on, and the, the key difference really was, not necessarily what I was eating, but the fact that I was weighing everything, so it produced 2,000 calories on a non-training day, no, on a training, no, on a non-training day, 2,200, which means I was in a 500-calorie deficit, which mm. means at the end of the week, that was 3,500-calorie deficit. Mm. 3,500 calories deficit is one pound. So every week I was losing one pound of body fat. And did it come off like that? Exactly like that. Amazing. So it's very simple. People talk about calories, calories in, calories out. It's not accurate. It, it sort of is, really. Clearly, if you was eating just sugar all day or something like that, that's not good. But if you're eating decent food yeah. and you're in a deficit, you will lose body fat, simple as that. But Ollie and I played a lot of sport. Um, both played rugby quite a lot. And um, I remember we used to eat, well, I used to eat quite badly sometimes. But as long as I was burning off, you yes. know, if, if, that, if I was training a lot, like three, four hours a day, then I could kind of be a bit fast and loose with the sugar and the like Big Macs and stuff. Because you, it just comes straight in and goes straight out of as course, energy yeah. gain. But I think... Um, you have to be a bit more methodical, especially when you're set behind a desk. 
Well, I was doing three hours a week of exercise. So I'd always done three hours a week of exercise. It's basically just going to the gym three times a week, right? So I wasn't doing anything different there apart from uh, rather than just doing normal weights and a little bit of cardio, it was high intensive stuff. So it was basically sort of circuit training effectively. And the circuits were only like 10 minutes long, if that. One minute back, uh, gap, do it again. One minute gap, do it again. So it's three circuits. By the time you sort of changed and done, it was about an hour. So that was quite hard. Yeah. And uh, especially when you're on a deficit, when you're blasting stuff and you're on a deficit, you, you do feel it more because obviously you haven't got that energy mm. there to burn. Your, 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 your muscles should be devoid of um, certain uh, glycogen, it would be. So yeah, you would be struggling sometimes to actually get the energy to, to do it. Um, and you would have to go back from the gym and sometimes lay down because you'd be tired. And tired is a good thing if you're trying to lose weight because that means it's working. Yeah. Well, you say one of the main things, and I guess the question, I mean, it seems like we're all reasonably uh, au fait with fitness here, but did you feel good? Like, did you feel generally healthy and able to function? I think that's some people's complaint is, you put me on a diet, I am losing weight, and aesthetically I look pleasing, but... Um, I don't feel very functional. I'm a bit tired. Or a bit I'm dry. hungry and unhappy. Yeah, but at least you know. At least if I die today, then I'll look. I would. I would say towards the back end of that three months, I was probably the fittest I'd ever been. Yeah. So I was 40, 41 years old, and that's the fittest I'd ever been in terms of looked the fittest and felt the fittest. Yeah. Okay. So it was it was intense, as in I was very regimented, no alcohol at all. Uh, for three months I think that's the first time I've ever done that <laughs> and uh, yeah weighed all of my he food he says swilling a beer now <laughs> yeah, sorry, sorry for knocking off the wagon yeah and so it's, it was strict in that respect but it was the right amount of calories even though it was deficit it was right amount and they were good so I didn't feel unhealthy um yeah, so it, it it worked. And how did it evolve from there into Huel? Well, the, the so the the website launched. Uh, we we got some initial traction. I can remember we got on the homepage of Hacker News, so we got a shitload of traffic came in, and uh, definitely got some initial traction. But the general feedback was, "This is too difficult. I can't do that. I'm a working man. We're not. How am I going to go and cook uh, 100 grams of broccoli and an egg at 11 o'clock? That's not happening." So. I started thinking, shit, right? So people are really interested. Got a lot of sort of people showing interest. Friends as well was another key one. But I just talked to them. They said, well, I can't do that. I just can't, I can't replicate that. It's ridiculous. So I started thinking, right, how are we going to do this then? So they want the results, but they don't want to put the, the effort in to do the cooking. Protein shakes was one of the, um, was the afternoon snack. And uh, super convenient, super easy to weigh out, probably the easiest meal of the lot to do. And I started thinking, right, well, it's got protein in it. Why can't you put other stuff in, in the same format? And that, that was the genesis. And so I went online, found some um, uh, nutritionists, sp- spoke to a few, spoke to one in Australia, one in America, and ended up with who's currently our co-founder, James Collier. Went and saw him and then gave him the task and says, right, well, could we do this? And he said, yeah, I think you probably could. And I want it to be everything in there so you could just replace all your meals if you wanted to with with this this um, shake, this powder. And he said, right, leave it with me. Two weeks later, done a, done a report, came back, and pretty much that's a pretty similar form uh, formula than what we got today. Really? Yeah. That's awesome. So to the uninitiated, how, yes. how do you explain exactly what Huel is? Well, it's nutritionally complete food. So that means it contains all of the, there's, we, there's seven main pillars really. What it is, is you, you, your body needs um, uh, protein, fat, carbs, um, and then you've got vitamins, minerals, fiber, and we've got phytonutrients in it again, which is not 
classically perceived as an essential but because plants have got phytonutrients if you just took them out of your diet you never know where you might be missing something mm, mm. so we use as many mat- natural food sources as what we can so it's complete food which means that you could live off it if you choose to mm-hmm. but really the um what the feedback we get from our customers is what they want from Huel is they want he- healthy convenience food most convenience food which is a lot of people live off convenience food or n- need it for certain meals is usually junk food or very low quality in terms of nutrition whereas a lot of nutritious food that you may cook at home is not convenient mm-hmm. so we've got that sweet spot between the two we provide very convenient food super super easy to make very quick and easy you don't have to chop up vegetables and cook meat and spend half an hour on it but it's also complete it's got all the nutrients that you need in the single product therefore you get the best of both worlds and you know we say to people when they sort of talk about it, well, you're going to miss out on certain things. Yeah, totally, you will miss out on certain things. As in terms anyway. of you, if you're going to chew, you know, you're missing out on chewing, you're missing out on certain uh, beautiful meals. And we, that's not what it's for. It's to replace your inconvenient meal. So some people have to rush out of the house in the morning. That's an inconvenient meal. You're not going to sit down and cook something beautiful and delicious and yeah. art. Uh, uh, artistic at breakfast you're going to swill cereals or something else which is incredibly unhealthy exactly you've got cereal you've got toast and that's what we're trying to um, give a valid alternative to and again the same for lunch times if at the weekend I don't use fuel for example because at the uh, um, at the weekends you're probably going to go out and see friends or do something sociable and family yeah the family meal with but in the workplace, when you're in here, we're in an office here today, I suspect most people in here would do one or two things. They would probably either bring something from home, which by the time it's got to lunchtime, it's not looking that great. Mm. Or you go outside and in London, you're probably going to go to a sandwich shop and spend five, six pounds on a sandwich, packet of crisps and some sort of coffee or drink or something and bring it back. You might have to go out in the rain, you might have to go in queue, you might have to spend five or six pounds. You know it's not particularly nutritious, yeah. so it's not a good solution either. So those are the times when I think it's best is, is either lunch during the week. It's away, when you're away from a kitchen, if, you're, if you can cook a whole food meal from scratch and it's nutritionally complete, yes, that beats your hands down. But basically, sure would be everything else hands down in terms of nutrition mm. and convenience. And cost as well, I think I'm right in saying. Cost, yeah. yeah, I mean, it works out at 500 calorie meal in powder form is £1.31 if you buy it the cheapest way. So £1.31 per meal. So, yeah, that compares to yeah the cheapest sort of sandwiches you could possibly get. Yeah. Well, that's it. I think you become incredibly aware of the repetitive choices you make at work. Because every day you drift off to the same, you know, for us as the co-op. And have the same sandwich, and and it's not not for not for you, (laughs) but it does bother you. You think actually that's a hundred days of eating the same crap. Yeah, Um, and I I don't. That's how bad habits add up, and bad health starts to kick in because you just are doing it repeatedly. What's quite interesting, so uh, to to give a backstory, is I did three weeks straight on Huel. Yeah, and I I, Ollie, I think you're a bit more romantic about food. I'm quite functional about it. I loved it. And I'm not just saying that I loved it. I felt um, very, very like consistent. There was a really strange feeling that um, I don't know if anybody who's done it for an extended period of time will feel of feeling satiated but not full because it's yeah. because you're not eating a big meal and your stomach's not distending in the same way. You don't feel hungry. It's like all the cravings have been um, addressed, but you don't. You sort of feel light. I did. I did a month. Uh, we did blood tests at the start, and at the end, sort of proved that it's it's, it's fine. Some people were very sort of uh, skeptical of yeah. whether you'd be healthy or not. So I did a whole month, and it's exactly that that you sort of I I weighed it out, so I knew exactly what I was doing, 
and then it came in the evening that you've got this strange feeling because I would quite often be a type of person who ends up going into the fridge or a cupboard and you end up picking food and I realized you just most of the time you're eating food is not because you're hungry it's because you're craving sweet sour salty whatever that particular thing is and you're you're you overeat just because you're of your taste buds not because you're hungry you're not hungry most of the time you eat it's quite a weird sensation like you say when you when you're satiated so you sort of you you don't need you don't you there's don't no for anything yeah, yeah there's no desire for something yeah it's quite a strange feeling the only um thing i did add to it was when i was training that i i felt um i had a salt okay that was the only thing that i needed was occasionally if i, I put that in up but that was normally after i trained i think i drank a lot of water when i was training right. uh, and then to balance that out got it um needed to just add some salt but i felt I felt great, and your digestive system. I won't go into it, but you feel really. Yes, great, let's really talk regular. about your bowels. <laughs> no, no, no. I wasn't, I wasn't going to be so base, but you just everything's so regular. It's like you're never going to get food poisoning on it. You're not going to feel uh, distended or, yeah. or. It's quite strange that we get people go. Uh, it's powder, so there's no fiber in it, and they don't understand that fuel is very rich in fiber. It's yeah. got soluble and insoluble fiber in there, and it's got. I think it's 130 percent if you add 2,000 calories of, of the daily recommended, and. Uh, and so it's a good thing. So yeah, people think that it's it's, it's just liquid. They think it's lu- liquid. You're going to go straight through you. It's completely wrong. Yeah, you end up being extremely, like you say, uh, once a day. You're going to be very uh, normal. It's going to be, you know, it's not like you've been out on a, you know, the, the other end of the scale would be you've gone out and had a curry in the night before, and then the next day that's not a good experience. Uh-huh. Why well, you wake up in the morning and you don't have, um, you know, sometimes you've got black rings under your eyes because maybe you've, you've eaten something really sugary the night before. Yeah. You just wake up feeling exactly the same. Um, which I found really, really helpful. Did you, uh, one question, how aware were you of Soylent and what they were doing in the US? Well, the interesting thing was when I was doing body hack, I wasn't aware of them. So when we started uh, researching Shul and thinking about that, wasn't aware of them. When James did the um, nutritional profile and uh, formula, still wasn't aware of them. I think I started to get aware of them about halfway through the process. It took, from that point there, it took nearly a year to get to market. And um, because we had the formula, I had the, the name, I had the, the brand, I could do, I'd done all that within the first three months. What took a long time was finding somebody to make it a commercial scale, even though it's a powder, which is not arguably that complicated to blend. I can do it in my kitchen in no time at all. To get it made a commercial scale took a long, long time. It was really difficult. So I, I probably knew about them about halfway through that period. And in some ways, thank God that I did because I nearly gave up several times during that process. And one thing that sort of gave me a little bit more um, confidence that this was the right sort of path to go down is because they got some early traction and I started looking into it and they yeah they, they definitely got some early traction so that reinforced that it was a valid mm. idea and it would it's got legs to it so uh, there was one moment in particular where I that was it I was done so we'd we'd, we'd dealt with um, I've been let down by a few people but then we found this big multinational company so they're totally legit and uh, they said, yeah, we can do this for you. So I was like extremely happy, it was great. Worked with them for about three, no, it must be four months in total. So it was all positive, 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 positive. And then I started getting about itchy feet after about the third month going, what's going on? Started chasing. The end of the fourth month, he sent me an email, very brief, just said that we decided we're not gonna do this. And that was it, that was, what? I just thought, what the hell? And I just, um, I just said, I've been at this nearly, that's probably nearly a year in total that I'd been at it. 
and just thought, right, that's it, I'm done, don't know what to do. Then the following day, got up, thought, right, go back to square one, <laughs> went back to all the people that I'd either contacted before, went back to Google, did a load of searches, made loads of phone calls, and eventually it was actually one of the companies I had spoke to before, which is a small operation down in Devon, and uh, we're still working with them today, they're our main really? contract manufacturers, yeah. So I actually spoke to the guy there, really nice guy, and they were small, and now they've grown with us, and now they're a much bigger business than what they were, on the back of that as well. So it's worked out very nicely. Is it looking like you're gonna be their only client? We're, we're their biggest client by a long yeah. way now, yeah, for yeah. sure. Yeah. I so hope somebody got fired for that. And I hope there's loads of remorse, because that's really, they, they oh, don't care how much well, money. Give it, give, well, given the success, there's, yeah. yeah. So yeah. I hope that whoever was working yeah. that big company is, is yeah. just. I, I will email him back one day <laughs> yeah, and yes. remind him, yes. Because it would be painful sitting opposite everybody wearing their Huel t-shirts, yeah. just being a constant reminder. There, of there, there's a fair few people that I've got on my list of to, to email back, yeah. <laughs> I guess that relationship for you is, is extremely important, because I know that Soylent got into trouble recently because it's uh, meant to be uh, uh, gluten-free and lactose-free. Right. And they got some contamination right. in their production. Obviously, yeah. that was uh, was terrible for them. So it's good that you have that relationship with, this, with the guy in Devon. Oh, we, um, we've because had... quality control must be like essential for... Yeah, we're extremely conscious on stuff like that. And we've now got a quality team in-house as well. So we're really investing in making sure because, yeah, food stuff, stuff you put inside your body is extremely... And, and keeps coming back to this thing that I, I want to be proud of it. So I don't want any sort of shitty product. So we, we do ensure that we've got the right stuff inside there. We do ensure that we, you know, we, we high quality is very important to us. You do so, an organic one now as well. Don't no, you? We, no, we don't. Organic's a bit of a strange thing that it sounds very positive, but... <clears throat> one of our mission statements is to make affordable food mm. with minimal impact on the environment so it's sort of the problem with organic is that we're trying to feed 7 yeah. billion people now we've got to feed 9 billion people fairly soon organic yields are quite poor in comparison mm. so there's a there's a there's a there's a, uh, a difficulty between those those things that we we want to minimal impact but there again some of the organic um uh, pesticides, for example, are not necessarily good either. Mm. So just because something is natural, organic, doesn't mean it's good for you. Like deadly nightshade is organic, mm. and it ain't good for you. So yeah. just because it, it, it it's uh, organic and natural doesn't mean it's good. So this is a, a constant battle that we have trying to make sure we're making the right decisions. And it has to start from a point of you want to make the the ethical decision not just a trendy word decision yeah and unfortunately i think organics is maybe is, is quite difficult to define sometimes what actually organic is um and well in meat it, do, it doesn't mean antibiotic free which right. i think a lot of people assume okay really um and antibiotics are, are terrible obviously if you don't need them yeah, if everything was cooked in, you know, in an ideal world, you want to grow your veg at the end of the garden. You yes. know where it's yeah. been, and you want you you want to grow your meat at the end of the yeah. garden. That for me is organic, yeah. right? That's the proper way. But commercial organic, I don't I don't really know enough about it. Mm. But what I do know is that the yields are a problem, and that's the problem for us when we move into trying to feed nine billion people. Well, as you say, I think your mission statement might uh, umbrella other causes, e.g., getting people off meat or yeah. This, there's a, there's a supply chain efficiency that you're addressing and generally a reduction in, in the intensity of agriculture and stuff like that, which is probably, yeah. if achieved, um, yeah. has huge positive exactly, ramifications. Exactly, yeah. So just simply switching from, you know, don't have to, I'm not a vegan myself, but we decided very early days to make a, a vegan product because if you can have if you can have vegan products, why wouldn't you? Because it mm. is better for the environment for sure. I mean, I during this process, I've learned a fair bit and 
uh, livestock production produces more greenhouse gases than all of the cars, planes and trains in the world combined. You just think, well, it's very inefficient way to produce food. Yeah. That you have to grow food to then give to an animal that then waste most of that food at their back end and then after a number of years of maybe being mistreated or not being treated in, a, in particularly a, a nice way if you look at how chicken are, uh, are grown then you then you kill it yeah. and then you throw away a lot of the stuff that was in there in the first place or you give it to dog food or whatever it would be and so then you end up with something that's very efficient why not just grow the food that was fed to them can you not eat just that that would be an easy way to do it so yeah, it's interesting actually we actually mentioned <coughs> Huel on this podcast before right. we were talking to Andy and Pete from from Not Meat or well, they initially had a burger business called uh, Chosen yeah, Bun yeah I did listen to it right yeah, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah nice um, and that they, they're doing exactly what you've just described they're trying to make meat but it's vegan meat yeah plant um, protein based strips plant protein yeah. I, well I've got a quick question as an interim solution I, I 100% don't expect your business to pivot this way but if animals are being fed and we're trying to make nutritionally complete food for animals would you ever consider as like an interim solution to all the feed they get given Huel a, pet. a Huel derived <laughs> animal yeah that might be a good idea we'll have to look into that I mean one. people spend a lot of money it's big market pet food well, they send so much soy over from Argentina apparently to feed beef cattle and stuff like that and it's just, basically there's loads of, of plants being sent from all over different countries in the world to try and feed all the livestock and it's as you say if you look at it from a supply chain efficiency or logistical operation, it, it's insane. Mm. There might be, yeah, I, was listening, I don't know where I was listening to. Somebody told me, I was listening to a podcast the other day, they were saying that the, some in China, they don't like white chicken meat, for example. They, f- they used to throw it away. Oh my God, that's a lot of people throwing away white chicken meat. Exactly, so they eat the dark meat. So somebody said they then somebody clocked onto this and then they took the, 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 the white chicken meat and they, they turned it into a dog food of some sort, or dog chews or something like that. So they utilised that. And that, that, there is waste in a lot of in food chains. So I think pea protein, um, I think that was the waste product at one stage. I think they was extracting it out of the pea to get the pea flavour or whatever they were after mm. and then the pea protein was being thrown away and then somebody goes what are you throwing that stuff away from can we not use it for something so this that probably happens across the food industry across the world because in one part of the world you might be throwing something away that we want here and vice versa I well that that would be my question so at the moment I, I, we obviously Huel is a commercial product in the UK um, and you can see people drinking it do you have any designs for how you'll get into maybe emerging markets and places of low um, nutritional availability and where you can give affordable food to yep. let's place, place in India or something like that? And, yeah, and sure. what does the expansion plan look like? We have uh, we we've started from um, a process of looking at different countries by usually where people buy from. We've sold to eighty countries now, so people come to our international site and they buy. So usually it's self. The, the, the users select where we go to next. So, for example, the first place we went to was Germany because it was our second most popular market. Um, uh, America's an exception that we didn't sell to America because of uh, import rules into America are quite complicated. But obviously we know it's a massive market, so we chose to go there. Um, but other places across the world, so, you know, most of Europe, we've we've launched a French website, a um, uh, Italian one's coming soon, and this would be based on our own data. So this is mm. not us choosing where to go. In terms of places such as India, yeah, we've looked at it, but we usually look at what the e-commerce penetration is because um, we are direct to consumer mm-hmm. and therefore we need the e-commerce e- ecosystem to be strong and we need the delivery network to be strong to make it an attractive market for us. Um, 
And so India, I think on the ranking system we did, didn't come up high enough to be in the top 10. So it wouldn't be one that we'd be going to in the short term. But there's definitely, uh, you know, we all eat food in the world and we all eat food multiple times a day pretty much. So the whole world could benefit from a product such as Huel. And so it will be stuff that we will expand into those sorts of places. And uh, it just needs to be reviewed because what we want to be is nutritionally complete. And so we have to look at the local um, nutritional profile that they've chosen. Mm. The ones we've looked at so far across the world, they are very, very similar. So we do sometimes have to reformulate, but not by much to make sure it fits. But in terms of India, I'm not sure what theirs is. Right. Because I guess there's an interesting matrix of like population affected by the change, the nutrition, the average per capita like level of nutrition yep. um, and where you could fit in between. But it's obviously that's a huge operation to undertake. Yes. Um, Going back a bit in the timeline. Sure. How did you, once you'd, you'd overcome the production problems, how did you start marketing it? Because I know you were saying before the <coughs> podcast that um, you're looking to compete not with the the bodybuilding protein shake yep. industry, but with the food industry. And the idea, well, until until before Huel, um, the idea of consuming powdered food was almost kind of sci-fi and it, you know, it's, it's not yep. really commonplace. So how did you overcome that? I don't know if we did overcome it. So <laughs> <laughs> well, how did you start? So the, we, um, <clears throat> the, we spent a lot of time on the website, making sure the website was as clear and comprehensive we spent a lot of time making more information than some websites uh, we've often spoken to ux designers said you've got too much information here but i think it's reassuring when you're dealing with something which which is novel to give more information so if you want it it's there if you don't you don't have to read it all you know yeah. you scan up and I mean, down you've the got like um experiment like whole like theses and uh blood test um, yeah, readouts. we've done loads of different stuff. And so we just feel that, you know, we, we want to be transparent and open with this and we want to explain to people as best as we can. James Collier is very knowledgeable. You know, he's got 25 years experience in the food industry. So we spent a lot of time trying to explain stuff. And then uh, on top of that, we, you know, the early marketing we did really was PR. That's what we did in the early days. I, I, uh, I hired a PR agency um, straight away and so pre-launch, and uh, I'd seen them don't do some very good work with actually a previous business we spoke about earlier from one of my competitors back in the day. Mm. They'd done some very good work for him. So I thought, right, I'm going to go back to them, spoke to them, and we got quite a lot of PR in the first month. It is a novel product. It is newsworthy in the sense of journalists quite often latch onto this, either I think it was Matrix-style food at the yeah, time. Yeah, I've read some of the articles. Exactly. So it's all that sort of stuff, and that's fine. I mean, all PR is good PR, and that's the way I see it. And if people read stuff... I, I do believe PR should be something that startups should deal with at an early stage mm. because uh, the way I usually describe it is like usually the film that's advertised on TV is a film that's usually the one you don't want to go and see because they didn't get any PR because their film wasn't very good and therefore they have to advertise it on TV. You know, like uh, the best film of all times, they're not going to be advertised on TV because you've heard about them through the grapevine, mm. so to speak. So I think it is worth investing in PR. It's not that expensive, but if you've got a novel product, it's got a good story behind it you should get some we got quite a lot of national pr straight away i bet but the novelty of the product does play into that if you're Indeed. doing your yeah another sort of ai SaaS business but maybe yeah. so maybe that's the problem maybe that's something that you should fundamentally think about and think well actually that's the wrong thing to do therefore if you're not going to get so many pr then maybe on you're on the wrong product it's not exciting it's not new enough mm -hmm. it's not the right thing what you've got to do is, therefore is just 
uh, we're going to go into books later, I think, but there's a very good book um, on marketing. And one of the things there, he says, you do not go into an existing category. You don't have to change that much. You just need to create a new category. If you can't do that, then you're probably doing the wrong thing because why is anybody going to switch to you? Yeah. And therefore, you've got to th- if you're creating a new category, then it, it should be novel enough that it should be newsworthy. And if it's not, then maybe you should do it. Yeah. Um, and the name, was that just easily come about? No, that was extremely hard to really? come about, yes. Would you, would you show is... any failed names at all with <laughs> us? Uh, yeah, I can do probably, but the, the naming took me mm, uh, over a month. Really? Super hard, yeah, super hard, super important. So if you're going to do something, do it. I was just looking at some of the names out, out front there. Mm. Mm. <laughs> well, so I, I, I don't want to slag We're not affiliated with any of them. Yeah, can, I went to... Unbound conference last week, uh, and there were a lot of jazzy names and no explanations of what anything did. And then the name would rarely, because obviously human fuel yep. is pretty self-explanatory. But n- not many of these names um, would stack up. It'd be called like Magpie.io or something, yep. and then you'd be like, it's B two B for accountants AI or something. It's yep. just, it was like really flashy. Yeah. Um, but it was another name is super. Again, th- this book that I'm talking about it does spend a lot of time talking about naming. That is super important. You know that. Uh, I can't remember the examples he gives, but yeah, I, I strongly believe that you will buy things on name, and sometimes I would, name I would, is vitally important. I would contest that with the example of Moon Pig. Remember that card? That e- Nick Jenkins, yeah. Why is that a bad name? It's a terrible name, isn't it? It's very memorable. It is memorable. Well, I suppose fun, it, Funky Pigeon came in just after, didn't they? Yeah, based on the same logic. Yeah, it was just also right. like confused. But, I mean, you, can't, you can't go wrong with two, like Facebook, two words stuck together. Can't sort of go wrong because it's easy to spe- spell and easy to say. Yeah. So that's, that ticks quite a few of the boxes straight away. It's not, it wouldn't be very good as a new clothing range, for example. So you have to think about what it's for. Yeah. And um, anyway, I watched the, um, uh, the film about McDonald's. And the guy at the end said, why did you buy it? And he said he bought it because of the name. Yeah, interesting. It sticks. Um, so you, did you just have a moment where this is dropped in your plate? You thought human fuel? No, it's, stra- it's strange. I had three front runners. Okay. And uh, it wasn't until it was made up into a logo that it looked right. And it's strange because there's, there's how things sound, how things are spelled, there's all things to how it looks. And at the time when he put it into that Helvetica font, and it just looked right. I actually wanted uh, something with two syllables, you know, Facebook, Google, you know, things that have got two syllables sound, roll off the tongue sometimes a little bit easier than Huel. Yeah. And uh, so it wasn't my front runner at the time, but when I looked at it, it just looked right. It does look just, right. On, yeah, on your left pectoral, it looks, it looks right. Um, and actually we see it all over the place all now, people wandering around. In fact, you said on, on Wednesday, yeah. Um, went to the gym and somebody was had their shaker and their t-shirt on at the same time I was like how are you getting everybody to wear your t-shirt and I wear your t-shirt sometimes like, well, this this is one of our new t-shirts that we, we're, we're making because we've realised that we're going to it's got like an athletic fit almost like an Under Armour type yeah we want to okay so again coming back to being proud of something the current mm. ones are, are guild and t-shirts are good quality t-shirts but they're somebody else's t-shirts so we decide we want to do our own so these yeah. ones are we chose a new material. It's got like a little bit of stretch in it, but not too much. Yeah. So it's got some elastine in it. We took the label out the back. So then it's got like its own label in. So it's a printed label in there yeah. rather than being the, the uh, cause it's got stretch. We had to get uh, the print in there. It's not just straight print. It's got, um, that's got stretch in it as well. So it doesn't cracks in the early ones got cracks and then it's going to come in its own bespoke um, 
brown paper rather than polythenes. We don't want polythenes that can't be recycled, so brown paper. So we spent some time and effort. But the way I see it is people talk about viral loops on websites, whether it be a social website or something. So I see the T-shirt as our physical viral loop. That If you give one of those T-shirts away, that costs us, well, I'm not going to say, but we only need <laughs> to get one customer. Yeah. If we get one customer off the back of that T-shirt, you wear it to gym once, somebody sees that and goes, what's that? Googles it, likes it, buys it, that's... So it's not one. just a, an upsell, high-margin product? It's, a, it's, a, it's, it's free. free with your yeah, first you order. Ah. So you know what? That, that, that it's worth it for the T-shirt. Exactly. <laughs> well, everybody, where you, but that right now, and, and nobody can see this because of the podcast, but on the video they will, uh, looks very all black. You know the all black um, kit, which is like kind of well fitted and it's just very simple white yeah. on black. Yeah, high um, contrast, so that that works very well for us. So um, yeah, it's, it's you know simple, nice. It's something nice that we give away, but it's also something that we think is is gives us something back as well. So we give you something, you get a free T-shirt, you wear it, but then you help promote our brand. Somebody sees that, says, "What's that?" Yeah. You ask a question, gets a conversation going. And they say it's probably well, and it's athletic use. envy as well. If you see somebody doing box jumps or being <coughs> particularly effective in the gym, um, I think that's just you. <laughs> yeah, well, um, it does set a nice tone for the first interaction with your customer. Yeah. Um, and I guess testament to the success of it is that I think there's a group um, or community in the, of hooligans. Yes. Is that something that grew organically, or was that a strategy that you you poked? And no, I think I think yeah, organically in the early days, uh, I've worked for some. Not good brands, Tesco's and Starbucks and Waitrose and John Lewis, and but I'd never seen that level of engagement back. In the very early days, I got some guys that are super passionate come back and they were sending us pictures and they were just like so enthusiastic. I just hadn't seen it, so I just thought, you know, we're onto something here. And so we we you know put our social pages up and put a little bit of work into it, mm-hmm. but just people just posted. They were just proud to receive this, so they were just posting unboxing or they were using the product or they were promoting it or mentioning us. It's just very very positive, and they all seemed to be nice people. Yeah. It was it was mm. different from the normal stuff that I'd seen. So we seemed to attract for some reason nice nice people. Clearly, uh, thanks very much. Yeah, and. Um, <laughs> Uh, it does feel like a nice community of people. You know, we've got a forum which is very active. Uh, we've got social pages which are pretty active, and um, just yeah, the interaction just—it just always genuinely feels very positive. You know, we've got our detractors as well, mm. but they are not usually our customers. Yeah. Usually, our customers are usually very happy because we we try our best to make sure you know down to the level of cardboard boxes. In the early days, we noticed the cardboard boxes were getting a little bit beaten up, so we spent time to find out what different types of cardboard there was then we so the cardboard we send out is not super expensive but it's a higher spec cardboard so it stays better then we thought right well i'll put fragile on the outside printed on the outside so the the delivery drivers weren't chucking them about so it should arrive with you in a pretty pristine condition we pay for a better courier so it arrives next day you get a one hour delivery slot so it's all those little bits means yeah. that when you when you get it it's in pristine condition you've got a one hour delivery slot so you don't miss it you get alerts and tracking you can send it to a shop then you open it and then we we tell them tell our delivery serve uh, fulfillment house exactly how to pack it in what order so when you open it it looks good there's a little uh, label on the inside which has been hand signed by somebody so they've taken care to make sure that what's in the box is actually there not just chucked it in they've ticked the box to say what it actually contains so it's all those little bits to make sure that your experience of using Huel is a positive one and that maybe comes through when we get our interaction back mm. on social. And so were you cash flow positive from, from the start after your initial pretty, PR? Pretty much, yeah. 
And and have you have you raised money? I know we were talking about raising money before. No, we haven't to date. So it's all been bootstrapped. And you've raised uh, no money so far. No money so far. That's insane. And can, are you happy to give people an idea of the the traction that you're at? Yeah, give. sure. So we've sold. I think we we worked out. We had an all hands meeting yesterday. I think it's 22 million meals that we've sold. Wow. So we did in the first year. So we launched in June 2015. So the first financial year, which have ended in uh, January 2016, that first year was 750k. The next year was 5.8 million, and the last uh, last year we just completed the end of January this year was 14.1. And this year we're going to do possibly three times that. Oh my god! So it's funny, isn't it? Because if we saw those projections of a startup, one, two, three years, through a third year, sort of fourteen odd million, and then three times after that, yeah. we'd think they're mad. <laughs> yeah, and profitable yeah. all the way, we'd be like, and profitable all the way. It's yeah. the pitch deck yeah. hockey stick yeah, that never Jacob, gets achieved. Right. Yeah, yeah. But it's, I love about this is because um, it's an offline business model is that there's still the attention to detail that people kind of can easily cheat online are stuff that you pay attention because people kind of talk about the clicks of buttons and and you know what color this that and the other is just to kind of get a little bit of extra efficiency mm. um, and the fact that you pay attention to that in an offline fashion yeah uh, I think is is brilliant if I <sighs> I didn't do this to make money. That's the difference, I think, is I did it because I wanted to do something that I was into and something that I was going to be proud of. So every, everything we do, we try and <coughs> make um, make quality. You know, it needs to be quality. So the website, yeah, we do, we do do A-B testing on buttons and things like that. We do try and, you know, optimize the website. But offline, the same as well. And again, if I wouldn't use the product or wouldn't wear the clothing, then it isn't good enough. We wouldn't do it. So we do try our best to make sure that... Um, Everything is again the same for our customer service. That I've worked to too many companies where customer service is they're in a dark corner somewhere, they're the cheapest staff they can possibly get their hands on, they don't really care, and uh, just very low quality. So, our customer service people get paid the same as our marketing people, the same as our finance people, really? and they're all highly educated and um, they're all you know hand picked. I've, I've interviewed everybody at the business and they're all really good you know so i think that our customer service is very very strong you know we all have uh, they have ratings on the bottom of every email that goes out so we watch their ratings uh they're all you know trained and again i think it's, it's it just comes back to being high quality i've seen S- sam in the office use it and that was the first thing he said to me was the, the customer service was good like the highest you can possibly expect yeah. there's you know th- we're selling something that they could be customers could be for life could be for a very long time so and i just think it's rude as well i think a lot of companies the example i always give is i'm not going to name the name but if you rang up for a particular tv company you'd probably get straight through if you're going to sign up to their tv service you'd probably get straight through you put the phone down you go i've forgotten something you go back through to customer service once you've signed up it'll probably take you an hour to get through so it takes you 30 seconds to get through to the sales number take an hour to get through to customer service i think that's just rude this is where i think the subscription um startups have gone wrong because they what they've been fighting to do is is make retention difficult or more difficult or make you forget about it for another month longer because it kind of goes into that cost per acquisition lifetime value equation and i've noticed a lot of them were like oh we basically made it a three-step process to kind of cancel your subscription we found that revenue and retention went up and it's like oof Oof. That's not yeah. treating your customer first. That's treating revenue first, which I don't. I don't sort of blame them for doing. But it's like you, you probably need to front end the experience and the customer service as well, not just hit the bottom line. Yeah, you know, we give the example sometimes of you know that classic sort of gym gym membership when you try and like leave, they might chase after you and badge you and why are you leaving. Da da da. We don't. We don't. Don't want to do that. You know, we we try and make things as 
as simple as we possibly can. If you don't want the service anymore, you don't want the product, that's absolutely fine. You know, we'll do our best to help you, you know, cancel it or, or pause it or, or whatever you want to do, change it in any way. You know, we don't want to put any barriers in. We don't want to seem like a, a desperate company that's always chasing after you for money. That's not important. It seems like you also treat the, the customer having a good experience as a marketing node. Of course, because if one customer's got, even if, even if they decide they don't want something, if they don't, to say they don't like the taste. So we do our utmost to explain to them how they could improve the taste or they could uh, adapt it to them. It's always a little bit like coffee. Like first time you have it, you might not like it, but you might realise that you like cream in your coffee or I like milk in my coffee right. or you like sugar, I, I like brown sugar, whatever the, re- the differences are. So there's lots of ways you can adapt it to fit your personal needs. So we tried to help people to do that. If they still don't like it, then we, we, we you know, We'll help them as best as we can and we'll cancel the service or whatever it would be. The idea of that is that if that person has a good experience, whether it's they didn't continue, they still could tell someone. Somebody might say to him, what did you think of that? Well, I didn't like the taste, but that might be just me, but they are really good as a company. Mm. So that that should pay off in the long term. If you do the right thing for people, they'll do the right thing back. So you can't always please all the people all the time, but you can do your best. Mm. And what does what the future look like? Um, as far as you can tell, how would you yeah. like it to look? The future looks very, very bright. Yeah, um, we've got uh, three products in market now. So we've got a powder, we've got a bar, and we have cereal. So that's the world's first nutrition complete cereal. And we what have does that look like. I mean, is that flakes or a, no? It's like a granola. It's like okay. a fine, finish granola. And we've just recently launched a new version, which is an improved version, which is actually really good. Um, so uh, that we've just re- recently been rolling out international websites in terms of Europe mostly. So uh, Danish website, Polish, French, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And uh, America's going very well. It did it overtake. I think it overtook the UK as the biggest website, even though it launched two years later. Mm. So America's a huge uh, market and has great potential. And we're looking further afield as well. And then on top of that, we've got new products coming. So we did announce that this. This year, at some point, we will be launching a ready-to-drink version of Fuel. Yeah, I thought about that earlier. And that would be a, a very exciting product for us. And uh, we can't wait to get our hands on it because um, customers can't wait either. So we it's really the next really... level of convenience, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's the next level of convenience. <laughs> and it's just dispensing machines, I guess. <laughs> or a subscription to just fill up your, your fuel. So that's, that's extremely exciting. So... Um, yeah, we're fundraising at the moment. So one of the things we're doing at the moment is spend a lot of time speaking to investors. You spoke about it earlier. Don't mm. technically need the money. We're, we're profitable. But uh, it will allow us to be braver in some respects. It also allows us to... Um, uh, um, it's an insurance policy. That's why I put it to you guys earlier, is that uh, there's opportunities you can't see in the future. Yeah. And then if you haven't got the money there, you can't take advantage of them. There's also problems that may come up in the future, which you haven't got the money there, you can't deal with those problems. So... I see it as a big insurance policy and allows us to, to go faster. And so just to, to go back to your, your manufacturing base in Devon, mm. if you did continue to expand globally, yeah. um, will you, do, you, do you need to set up regional distribution, like say in Australia, where you try and recreate a facility there? Or it, it depends. So for example, in America, yes, we have got uh, manufacturing capabilities in America. Yeah. So that's because of the uh, import rules. It was difficult to do from the UK. So America's, we've got our own manufacturing and fulfillment in terms of the rest of the world that is all supplied out of Devon wow uh, we then ship it to uh, Peterborough which is where our fulfillment house is and for Europe we ship it to Germany where there's in the second fulfillment house for the rest of Europe 
so that works quite smoothly and um, yeah technically we don't need to um, get it manufactured anywhere else unless there's certain exceptions so it might be that like you say say you want to go Australia um, you may decide that that's so far away that it's either not practical or just not economical to ship from the UK therefore you would if you wanted to go into that country heavy you may look at local uh, manufacturing and fulfillment but we haven't got uh, an eye on that at the moment but we don't actually currently ship to Australia and with the uh, what, what question that Ollie and I were talking about earlier was with the notion of it being nutritionally complete um, is R&D going to be a big part of how you continue to look at the company's trajectory because once it's complete it's like have you hit ground zero of human nutrition obviously it's going to be slightly personalised for different people and we also spoke about how different people probably have slightly different needs yep. um, but, but how do you see the culture of innovation going on um, around food, food technology for you? We, we constantly, we've got an R&D team, so we've got new product development and we're constantly looking at how we can improve things. And so that, that improvement can come from either there's recent research that says something is, is valid, therefore you would try and put that in, or up certain levels of certain things. And then there's more complex stuff where you're looking at um, supply chain issues. So you wanted to deal with... Um, uh, an ingredients problem it might be a taste profile it might be a supply problem or something like that that you need to make sure that so we've got a quality team we've got new product development and then we get feedback from customers and so we we innovate or or iterate on what we've already got mm. um so for example our bar it's actually got the highest net promoter score out of our products but when but we don't feel it's mass market friendly because it's quite it's quite dry so um uh, we've tried uh, several times to improve that and to, and we're constantly working on that and then the um, the new product developments required for the RTD has been ridiculously complicated and uh, time consuming so we've been at that probably 18 months and it's just taken a very very long time so as soon as we do something as soon as we launch it the difference is you know if you go into a supermarket and buy most products they may be the same problem they they product they made a hundred years ago mm. we don't work like that we make something and in the day it's launched it's back to the drawing board to say well how do we make it better so that may be in terms of taste texture nutritionals um, ingredients you may just say this ingredients is okay but there's a better ingredient out there so for example we replace folic acid with methylate calcium and it's that single ingredients is more bioavailable so it's a better ingredients it's a thousand times more expensive literally Um, but because it's such a tiny part it didn't really significantly affect the overall price of the product and therefore we decided that's a better product we'll put that in so there's other learnings we get from that so that's how we we iterate and improve do you think you'd ever do um made to order huel because i was just i was sort of thinking about the notion of nutritionally complete and that you know it's it's becoming quite well established now that each individual their health is 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 very individual like their require their their physical requirements, um, you know these things like DNA fit, where sure. you get your your requirement profile back based yep. on your on your genome. Yeah. Um, would you ever be ever would you ever be able to plug into that for people to like submit their individual requirements? Obviously, it would have to be a lot more expensive. Um, but is that something you'd ever never say never I don't I actually did that the other day there was 23 of me yeah it's interesting yeah yeah, it is quite interesting so um, yeah I'm aware of it Um, the way that the nutritional profiles are produced is that it's done on a on a bell curve so it just includes everybody so typically when it says 100% of something that's for the sort that's for 
everybody. Yeah. Some people need less, but typically people don't need any more than that. So mm-hmm. that's how that's worked out. So you sort of covered everybody. It may be not specifically optimized for you as an individual. And um, that's, that's micronutrients I'm talking about really. Obviously yeah. as an individual, you may, uh, I'm not I'm not sure I'm, I'm I'm convinced on this but some people supposedly respond better to carbs or protein or fat than other people and I'm not sure I completely agree or understand whether that's true or not mm-hmm. so that's something we can dig into it's something that we don't do because in terms of being affordable universally affordable that makes it maybe less attractive yeah. and may more expensive we're aware they they do do this for certain products again I'm not going to name names but I know they do it for certain uh and again, they, they claim that it's tailored to individuals, but it won't be because it's too complicated to do. What they would do is they'll probably do 18 different versions or something like that, and you'll get one of those. So, yeah, I mean, possibly. It's a long way off. If, yeah, if I, I need to be convinced of the benefits first before we'd even look at it. And, um, you know, the way that James has structured Huel, he thinks that is, is, is a good macro fit for, for everybody, really, that... Uh, Huel basically is 40% carbs, 30% uh, fat and 30% protein. He thinks that covers so many bases yeah. uh, and just is a, is a good fit. Um, I think we, we've covered a lot of ground there. Um, if you're happy yes. with that, then we go to sort of the, onto book recommendations and, and, a, and a leadership advice and things. So um, is there a, obviously your background is strongly marketing, but, and, and, and now actually just all round founding companies um so is there a book that you'd recommend most there the interesting thing is i don't read a lot of books i buy a lot of books and i never read the things <laughs> i usually buy them i get even bored i think books are a bad format you know like they're usually just blocks of text i think i'm a little bit dyslexic so i don't en- end up reading i look at them i think there's no there's no um there's no formatting it's just it's just very old old-fashioned yeah so there is one book that i would highly recommend which is called just going to reference it back. It's a book that I got introduced to when I was at university, so I did a marketing degree. So it's sort of been around for a long time. But the, the guy says, Al Reese and Jack Trout. So it's uh, the 22 Immutable Laws of Marketing. Mm. That, you don't need a degree in marketing. Just buy that one book and you're done. Yeah, so if it. you read that, I've read that several times. I read that just before I launched Shul, just to remind myself of how he would approach it. And some of those things about, we talked about creating categories earlier. Mm-hmm. So one of those things, he's very... Uh, passionate about doing PR early he's very passionate about getting the name right as well those sorts of things if you get those things right and you just read that book try and follow that as best as you can and that should help your startup definitely cool it's like some people um, defer to Ogilvy as well they kind of there's all these derivative um, bits about advertising and actually if you go back to this you know 50 yeah. 60s it's like he, he did he was pretty close short of not knowing that computers were going to come up he was a lot yeah. of that's there um, I like it, the f- but instead of books what I do do is a lot of podcasts interesting so I think podcasts for me because I don't have to read are much better <laughs> because then you can listen and I think because when people are talking they emphasise things you can hear tone yep. obviously most communication is not written mm. or not just words it's actually how it's said that you can pick up and infer a lot more and you can understand a lot more when you hear people talk so I think podcasts are far superior to a book so I listen to shitloads of podcasts. Such as any any favourites apart from this one? So, of course, this one. Uh, I've listened to probably nearly every this week in startups. Yeah, so that's Jason Calcan's podcast. I think mm. he's up to six or seven hundred now. 
So usually I, I walk to and from work, so it's 45 minutes each way, so I can usually get through one to two podcasts per day. Mm-hmm. So you wow. add that up, so it's quite a lot. So I would say that in particular, I listen to Joe Rogan's podcast, yeah. which maybe yeah. is not business related, but that's very Sometimes good. Sometimes it is. Sometimes yeah. it is, you pick stuff up, and all you've got to listen to, what I usually think is, you're not, you, you, don't, you can't remember all of it, but if you get one or two gems out of each podcast that you can actually use, that is very valuable. Yeah, you can be interesting at dinner party. Yeah. <laughs> James Altucher, he does a podcast. He does some quite odd characters on there, so you get different sort of perspectives he's on stuff. He's quite an odd character. He's, he's brilliant, character. but he's quite an odd character. Yeah, so that is a really strong podcast as well. So Tim Ferriss, I've sort of stopped listening to him, so, but I so did weird. I did listen to him in the early days, and he did have some good podcasts, so that he's very strong as well. So those sort of ones, but I mean... Um, yeah, so there's probably some other ones that are really good, but they're the main ones. What people seem to be saying is that because it's a long form content unlike uh, a 10 minute interview yeah um you actually get to see both the the interviewer and the interviewee you get to see their thought process unravel and that is a really good way for you to experience that with them and remember and learn which you can't from just you know reading 10 bullet points you don't get the like there's no story there there's, there's no yeah you, it's hard exactly. yeah exactly it's, it's much easier you know people this is how people sort of communicate and always have done written is it's a bit too dry for me i can't i can do it but uh, it's a bit of a forcing whereas when you're walking or say you're doing something where sitting on a train coming to work a podcast is useful because otherwise it's dead time yeah and it's put going straight into your head you don't have to do any work or reading stuff mm-hmm. it just goes straight in i just think it's just so much so much more um understanding from hearing someone's voice than actually reading somebody's words agreed well we hope so <laughs> it's why i don't like the the written um journalistic articles on Huel. There's, there's no value to this at all. Either show me photos of what, what happened or what didn't happen to you, mm. or show me a video, but writing down what you felt and how you experienced it, I can't. I can't and also push. another thing I've realized, this this has taken a little bit of time, is that um, when you read, say, a newspaper, you sort of think you're reading the Times or the, the, the Telegraph or whatever, mm. but you're not. You're reading one person's personal opinion, mm. and that person might be not the right person they might have no experience so we've been reviewed several times by journalists who are not food critics and they're not nutritionists they've got no knowledge at all so you end up thinking you're reading say the telegraph opinion of your product but it's not it's just one joe blogs who doesn't know what he's talking about about food doesn't know what he's talking about about nutrition there was a couple of them that just completely ignored our instructions on how to use it completely ignored instructions on how to make it and then were highly critical because it was fun to do it's fun to be critical right sensationalize a bit i lived off goop and uh, i survived and it's like of course you survived it was five days i had a twitter rant with one of one one (laughs) journalist even his editor then came into this rant and said this is not how you deal with journalists and i said well i don't i don't care Mm. i'm gonna put my opinion across I think that was the wrong thing to do. You blatantly ignored us. You just did it because it was sensational and it was fun to write. And uh, you don't understand that you could be, you could have killed a business there. Yeah. So in the early days when you haven't got that much traction, it's very, it can be very painful. It could be very negative. You can argue all PR is good PR, but at the time when you're passionate about something, it's very annoying. And actually, even though I did that, they did actually come back and write another review afterwards. So he sort of didn't apologize, but he sort of came back and did another one guess what he did second time around he still did it he did it again and it was slightly warmer slightly better but he still did the sensational thing and still ignored some of our recommendations of how to do it well the interesting thing about that is that um 
part of the reason why they're they're having to send. Wow, sounds like thunder. it's going to rain. That was thunder. That yeah. Yeah. hasn't rained for months. Um, is it they sensationalise it because they're they're struggling as a as an outlet as a media outlet, yeah, and they're tr so they're trying yeah, to get readership. Exactly. It's basically the idea of click. Exactly, they're deep yeah. linking um, to their website. And they're struggling yeah. against this long-form content that we flatter ourselves <laughs> by providing. But the, the, yeah, they're trying, yeah, exactly. They're trying to write something where you wouldn't do it in a podcast environment. You couldn't do it because the other person... Your face, would they? Yeah, yeah the other no person way. would walk out, right? They wouldn't do it. And so I usually just send, I usually send, when, it, when anything like this happens, the, the quote from Ratatouille, you know, he, mm. uh, Anton Ego, he does film. that little speech. Yeah. There's a little speech in there about critics and how their stuff is completely worthless they're not actually creating anything and usually they shut up after they've seen something like that they've got no comeback on that at all they realise that they've just been a critic and they're not actually helping anybody yeah that's where user user testimonials is where to look um for a, for a truthful opinion I had one which um, we asked Andy and Pete as well which was anything that informed your, your nutritional opinions or did a lot of it come from James um, and just your own experiences because yeah. I, I guess some, what I'm trying to say is anybody who's listening who wants to read around your material I guess can they just go to the website yeah. the best body yeah. of content there's a, there's a guide and article area there where we've tried so if anybody says right can I lose weight on here we, we've written a guide on, on that and they talk about fats and different types of fats we've written a guide on that so James is very conscious very uh, considered and what he does is he, he writes it from his knowledge references everything that he can so it's fully referenced and um, as impartial as possible you know we've, we're not trying to like persuade you or sell you we just want to try and write you know clean uh, informative content i have one question as well sorry it is what's your stance with a product like huel on influencer marketing just because it seems to be bubbling up a lot yeah. and you could create that envy culture of like the fitness models on instagram yeah, talking yeah, about yeah. Huel. yeah yeah okay so our approach is that we we've been approached many times by people and if somebody's genuine and show interest in us we'll send them free product we don't pay influencers. Mm -hmm. um, the reason we don't want that is because it's um, we want authentic con uh, content or, or people to be authentic. So um, we give people a product. So in the very early days, we had four people approach me who were going to row from um, Portugal to Rio for the Olympics. So there was four people, and they said, "Right, we, we're going to be on this little rowboat for." three weeks or four weeks and we need some food that's easy to store can we have some fuel i said well i'm not I'm, we don't pay influencers we don't pay we don't do sponsorships so no we just want your product so those sorts of things work well yeah. for us and uh we've done that quite a few times um so yeah influences are are good however yeah your point is that there's certain industries which are more suited to influencer marketing so they would probably be beauty and they'll probably be fitness mm. And so, you know, we, we look up to, say, Gymshark about their influencer stuff. They've got, I think, themselves, they've got 2.3 million followers on Instagram. We've got 45,000. So if you want to be, if you're an 18-year-old guy and you want to be buff, you probably look up to a 25-year-old guy who is already buff. So there's a very logical person to be influenced by. Mm -hmm. If we're selling the food stuff that could be sold to teachers, students, pensioners, uh, office workers who is who is a logical influencer there isn't one as clearly logical as there would be for somebody who wants to sell gym clothing so right. for them perfect if you're a beauty person perfect but for us it's harder to identify who would be a good influencer it may also kill you actually a bit it may uh, 
but build brick walls around the idea of fitness. Exactly. Like we we yeah. stayed away from being fitness, so we don't want to use fitness models. You certainly don't want any guys with veins, you know, like doing stuff for us. That's not that's not the your way. We're we're a food stuff and we're for the mass market. We we're not um you know, it's not a fitness product, no. With that, um as a mass market product, do you um you, you just won't go near supermarkets when any retail outlets or is that <sighs> Sorry, is that, is that going to be a, that could be a long? <laughs> I, just, I just thought I was like, there is mass market direct to consumer, which is yeah. quite a futuristic way of having direct yeah. to consumer in the way that Simba and, and Eve are. Yeah. Um, or you just have like, I can pick it up from the shop, which is the, the ready to drink will be. But I think our powder may never go into retail, right? Uh, offline retail, uh, whereas the RTD, the ready to drink that we're making at the moment, much more of an impulse purchase. You imagine you're at a train station, you want something to grab and go, you go and open one of those big double fridges and mm. there's something in there. That makes perfect sense to me. They can offer something that we can't currently do, whereas a big shed can't really offer something that we can't currently do. You know, carrying fuel out to your car, we can send it directly to your house. Right. So it's more efficient that way. We can send it directly to workplace. So it's more efficient to us send it directly. We keep then closer contact with our customer. Mm. One thing what you do when you sell via retailers is you don't know who your customer is. You can't talk to them. You can't give them customer service. You're completely out of your hands. Whereas at the moment we've got the end to end. We can c control everything. They come to our website. Uh, they use our checkout. They get our delivery boxes. They use our customer service. We can give a better experience doing that but uh, impulse purchase is something we can't currently do really. So that would be interesting at some point. Um, okay, a couple of quick fire ones before you, before you want to close it out. Um, what's the simplest and best thing people could be doing to be healthy? Move more. Move more. Yeah, so I said earlier that I walk to work. So you don't want to go into the gym for some people. If you already go to the gym, great. If it's not for you, then try and find something where you can do something without having to become a hassle yeah so maybe walk to work could be a simple one i i've always had dogs if you've got a dog you've got to do an hour walk day anyway for, mm. for walking a dog so that's those sort of things you fit into your life that don't become a hassle and if you use a podcast i actually look forward to taking the dog for a walk so i can put a podcast on and listen to another one yeah so you get benefit that way so try and think of something where you can do something whether it take up a sport or or walk to work something where you can move more have you seen sweatcoin did you we see talked about it briefly, yeah. Before we interact oh, right. with them, but yeah. they, they reward users for, for walking and they've done a great job of sweeping up the um, the people who are afraid of gyms or just want to increase right. their usage, um, which is good because if you attack that portion of users, you, you stop people getting diabetes disease, you're kind of defending right. them and getting them more active. But it completes your walk with your dog, your Got it. half an hour and your podcast. Got it. And your heel and, win. And, and, and your heel, yeah. <laughs> yeah just, um, what's the best advice you've ever given or the best advice you've received? For anything. Life. Life. Okay, so this is one of my friends said this, and it's probably needs a little bit of context to it, but he said, if, 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 it, if it doesn't fit, force it. And the logic, the, the reason why I like this <laughs> is that um, actually the, the 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 story behind it was I was I was on a this was on a uni I was working on a building site and there was a, we had to we were putting panels up to make a house and uh, it didn't fit so I was like probably like it doesn't fit and like I'm not saying giving up but I just yeah. thought it doesn't fit and he just came over he goes it don't fit he forced it picked up a sledgehammer just hit it a couple of times and got it in so we went home yeah. right <laughs> if it was me I probably would still be there going well, I don't know what to do like the house doesn't fit and it, so he made it happen so it's sort of like another way of saying make it happen yeah yeah. find the solution sometimes you have to just yeah bend the rules break the rules do something to get it done and so that sort of stuck with me that is sort of a, a sort of very simple way that um, I think people too easily give up and go, 
I can't do that. I don't know how to do it. But just hit it with a sledgehammer and get it in, and mm-hmm. it fits. Mm-hmm. So if it doesn't fit, force it. And uh, and finally, um, I saw. I think it was an article about which was sort of laying out how conscientious you are and meticulous when it comes to where Huel spends its money. And one of the things you said was that you bought an office space rather than renting Correct. it. Correct. Can you just like give some details on, on why that's advantageous? Very simply, that you're paying rent is dead money. Yeah. So I've uh, I bought a house when I was 27. So that was first house. Um, and in those days it was cheap. So it wasn't. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I bought my first flat. Sorry, when I was 27. And uh, yeah, if you're renting, it's dead money. Yeah. So people advised us against it, and in some ways maybe it was a bad decision because we've we moved in last June. We're trying to move out now because we've outgrown it. So we bought something when we had 12 people. So we had space to grow into. Now we're at. 45 in Aylesbury in a space that was designed originally for 24 so we've just grown too quick I bet that's sweaty at the moment (laughs) no we've got aircon it's very cold in actually yeah so it's it's quite a big space but it's it's cramped now but it's not super cramped it's really nice bustling and um yeah, but it's simple as that. I, I just looked at it, and the rent they were charging, we could have bought it in 15 years. And you think most houses, it takes you 25 years on a mortgage. I just thought, well, that's not very long. So we'll just buy it. And I thought, worst case, uh, we'll sell it. Yeah. Or let, let's it. It's an asset. It's an asset, right? Yeah. So I just thought, yeah, it makes logical sense to me. And then we get full control. We can decorate it however we like and knock it about and do whatever we like. Mm-hmm. So we've fully designed it, and it's, it's a very nice office. But we got to move. Huh. I think that was quite important um, when you've got a company with a strong manifesto. Is you do want to complete the um, the environment for retention as well. Hundred percent. Like yeah. Get everybody in there, sort of the temple of Huel. Yes. And, and coming in without so, sort of having chats around the water cooler with other people. To- totally made a big difference to us. That uh, you're exactly right. That we were in shared office space. You know, like a room like this with you know blank walls, very uh, unbranded. And then we bought that totally ours. Everything was done. Floor, ceiling, walls. Put kitchen in we put a boardroom in uh kitchen kitchen there we you know we just did a <laughs> <the> whole <laughs> only sachets of fuel in there i imagine exactly well we, <laughs> do, you, do, do your employees <laughs> drink um fuel regularly uh some do some don't i've never forced anybody to get it free though as part of the get it free yeah, yeah, yeah fine yeah some do Amazing. some don't wow. and um so yeah it's fully branded it feels really nice looks cool people come and where we are in aylesbury which is out in the sticks they they turn up and they the building from the outside is not that attractive and then mm. they come in and nearly everybody's sort of surprised because it feels like I'm in Silicon Roundabout or whatever you know it feels like a cool sort of startup place and uh, it's good for yeah uh, talent and then when investors come and see us you know when anybody comes to see us it gives them a this is a real business you know yeah. it feels real um, even though we're only three years old do you ever play up to the kind of like white space lab coat futuristic type vibe or is it not, not like at that? all yeah, no, it's no dress code no nothing there so it's just all re- very relaxed that's awesome. Um, I guess the last thing we want to ask, uh, there's loads of questions that I want to ask, but last question we want to ask that would be useful to you. Um, obviously, your fundraising at the moment, important to make people aware of that. But if anybody who's listening to this podcast could do anything to help you, whether it's like you're looking for new hires or whether you, know, you want to find anything out, what would that be? We're always looking for talent. So we, we've got very ambitious plans to uh, expand. So we're hiring about five people a month at the moment. And so we're looking for talent, but they need to be good, top talent. Yeah, we're only, we're very selective on who we who we take, and um, so yeah, everything across the board from marketing to finance to customer service to new product development um, to operations, 
and we're looking people we've got well we've actually got five offices believe it or not but the main one is in Aylesbury in Buckinghamshire um, and but we also need people in LA and we also need people in Berlin we've got teams out there and we have another team in Birmingham where our developers are mm. so yeah if anything from developers UX marketing finance operations anything across those we don't do a grad scheme <laughs> Well, we've uh, some of my funnily enough some of the best employees we've got are people who've came in with no experience so um you know one of the guys that i'm thinking of he came in i think he'd done a degree in pr believe it or not and he started and he started in the early days he was doing marketing with me and customer service now he's moved into operations he's been with the business from pretty much day one um and he's brilliant yeah he's really good you know he's a really valuable member of the team but pre that, no experience, no work experience, no nothing. Mm. And the beauty of people with no experience is you can mould them. Yeah, well, especially and if he's learning directly beneath you. It's yes. pretty good for him. So he can learn how we do stuff. Whereas if you recruit people with experience, sometimes they may be tainted mm. from how somebody else has taught them how to do stuff. So I think we've got a very good blend now. We've got everything from very, very little experience right up to super experienced people. So... Yeah, I'm, I'm very, I've been very happy with the grads that we've taken. Well, I might stress the point as well is that it's nice is you're not based in London, yep. where a lot of people feel that the only opportunity they can grab in the sort of startup scene or growing emergent scene is, means that they have to, are obliged to sort of go into London, whereas anybody around that area who Correct. goes to Aylesbury, yep. uh, it's a really good opportunity for them. So. Well, if you're young, you could still live in London and actually commute out, and the commute would be much nicer. Yeah, because the train would be empty. Exactly, <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah thank you so much for coming on it's been fascinating I really really enjoyed having you on um, so yeah hopefully that message will spread yeah so it's fun thanks very much thank you very thank much you. thank you cheers if you enjoyed this or any of our other conversations we'd love to get your feedback our twitter handle is at the startup mic m-i-c or get us an email or your ed at startupmicrodose.com if you're feeling particularly generous of spirit a review on iTunes would go a long way to ensuring that we can continue to bring you these conversations Finally, this recording could not have happened without the support of Founders Factory backed Entail. Their podcasting software and studio in the Daily Mail building, London, are as ever the unassuming stars of our show. Check out entail.co. And thank you for listening. Goodbye.